0: Lord willing, it will become abundantly clear why she is quite so marvelous. Certainly one of my heroes in the scriptures. Mark chapter 7, verse 24 through 37. And from there he, Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. <laughs> Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him. And came and fell down at his feet. And now the woman was a Gentile. A Syrophoenician by birth and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, Even yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. they begged him to lay his hand on him taking him aside from the crowd privately. He put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, "Fatha, that is, be open. His ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But... <laughs> The more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He's done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. All right, let's pray. Father, give life and light to your word. Your word's perfect. We're not. We need help. We ask that you would speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love how the Bible captures people in a way we see how clearly people never change. Not that they never change in terms of from life to death or uh, from uh, being unsaved to saved or from this life into the life to come, not in that sense, but more in the sense of kind of all people are alike. And I love how here he gives us this great kind of domestic illustration, one that has been lived a thousand times over in families all over the world and maybe in our houses too. It goes something like this. The family sits down to dinner. Good family meal. It's exciting. The children sitting there, the parents sitting there, maybe grandparents. It's a a big meal. The food is served, the plates are had, and everybody starts digging in. And somebody makes a simple mistake. Maybe it's actually not a mistake. Maybe it's on purpose. Maybe it's the child with the vegetables they don't like. Maybe it's your favorite food that slips off the fork either way. It doesn't matter. It bounces. It hits the corner of the plate. It hits right to the edge of where the placemat is if you have those, if not near the knife. And then it bounces onto the floor. And you think, five second rule, it's all right. I'm going to get it. But you know what happens and it's gone. You didn't see it, you'd heard it. The the inhalation sound of a dog going past and the food is gone. Usually, weirdly enough, this only happens if you really like it, I guess. I love how that's a story that we so clearly relate to. For those of you that had dogs, you know exactly what that's like. You loved having dogs when the kids were little, you never had to sweep under the table, never really had to mop particularly if we have a lab or something like that. An illustration here that Jesus is taking up as he teaches this lady and teaches us. We're going to look at these two kind of vignettes in the ministry of Christ, and they are magnificent. They're magnificent for a number of reasons. First of all, because they're probably two of the strangest in all of the Gospels. They're also probably two of the more misunderstood because of how Jesus interacts with both of these people. First, he seems unbearably harsh with this woman and calls her a dog to her face. She's like, I'm cool with that. And then to the next guy, he acts weird and seems to give him a wet willy or something of the sort. We're not entirely sure. Both of those assessments are incorrect. In fact, actually, Mark is doing something particularly sweet uh, with this passage as he's just finished, if you look up in 14, he's just finished this interchange between Jesus and uh, the, the Pharisees and the Jews on talking about holiness and defilement. What is it that makes a person unclean? Is it what comes into the body? Is it what goes out of the body? What is it that makes a person unclean? And all of that would have been something that would have been very common for the Jews to think in. That's a category that they would have had and had fixed firmly in their mind. And we have that category, I guess. Something different happened for them, though. In that the category of uncleanness, and not I'm talking like needing a bath, I'm talking about repugnant morality, the the image of spiritual filth, for them was characterized by people, not just activities. So that if you were to ask, what does it mean to be clean? More often than not, they would have a person pop into mind. Or if you were to ask them what it meant to be defiled, they would think about their neighbor. That distinction was drawn entirely on Jew and Gentile. Again, this is why the early church struggles so badly once Christ redeems them and knits them together is because when you ask what it meant to be unclean, they would say, oh, the Gentiles. And they would point to their neighbor. And oh no, now that neighbor loves Jesus and we're supposed to be in church together. And that person has been the personification of uncleanliness for me my entire life. How do I love that person? Mark is setting us up to be thinking in those categories. in even how he pins his book together. Where we are in the book of Mark is coming to the part where uh, Jesus' ministry is coming to a head. He's actually got to the point where the crowds are gathering together, getting large. The Jews have turned on him. They hate him. Uh, They're at the point of ready to kill him. And he goes into what's his, the, the kind of retirement ministry. He tries to get away to instruct his disciples to prepare them for when he heads to Jerusalem to die. This is kind of his, he pulls away to give them the most clear instructions. This is uh, when you're showing up you know, with the kids right before the family reunion and you pause in the car for 30 seconds to remind them how they're supposed to behave and the consequences if they don't. That's the, the, the kind of phase of the ministry that we're in. Jesus is giving them the most clear instructions to prepare them for his death. And interestingly, right after this discussion of what makes people unclean, and again, the Jews having this category of it being a Gentile. Gentiles are what what is unclean. I mean, even to the point where if you touched a Gentile, when you got back, you had to wash your hands and not like scrub it, you know, like you do with the NICU and have to get all the germs off so you can touch the baby. Like baptize your hands in a ritualistic fashion because the Gentiles were so unclean, it would contaminate me if I didn't. Directly from that into the Syrophoenician woman. And again, this woman is my hero. I cannot wait to talk to her in heaven. You have this amazingly moving, emotional, this is packed with emotion, uh, emotional interchange here between the woman and the Lord Jesus He enters a house. He's well outside of uh, right around Jerusalem. He's a ways uh, away. This would be a place where you would think it would be safe for him to kind of practice his ministry uh, without immediately getting killed. That's why he's gone away uh, and will eventually turn his face toward Jerusalem. He's uh, a little bit far off. He goes into a house uh, trying to be reserved again to teach his disciples. And yet, obviously, uh, verse 24, it doesn't work. (laughs) He's far enough into his ministry the crowds are following him he has enough of a reputation you can't hide jesus anymore doesn't matter how much you try doesn't matter what you do with him you can't hide jesus anymore verse 25 introduces the character this woman shows up who has a little daughter mark highlights that fact that's not just a daughter it's a little daughter she's a young girl Tender of age, which makes the next part of the sentence so terrible, possessed by an unclean spirit. This is, again, not like the horror movies. It's probably much worse. Not anything we would wish on our worst enemy, even if we knew who they were or what that was. And this woman falls down at his feet and begins to beg. And Mark highlights the answer for us here in verse 26. This woman is a Gentile. She's a Syrophoenician by birth. This is a woman who is on the outside and using the Pharisees' own categories from the previous part of the chapter. This is a defiled person falling at the feet of Jesus. If you were a Jew, you know how the story ends. It's really simple. You're a Gentile. Go away. That's how the story ends. For every Jew ever, that's the next part of the story. In fact, actually, he would have perhaps even been justified in being less nice than that. Some would have been disgusted even maybe by her presence. And as she falls at his... Feet she begs, begs him to cast the demon out of her daughter. In verse 27, he gives his answer, and his answer, this is a challenging answer. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He is presuming in his infinite wisdom that she is, I guess, more sophisticated in her uh, theological understanding of Judaism than most, uh, and drops not just this nugget, uh, not just this kind of rejection on her, but one that is presuming she's with it enough to understand. His answer is hard. As she's weeping at his feet, pleading with him to heal her precious daughter, he looks at her and says, in essence, God's pattern in my ministry is to reach the Jews first and then the Gentiles. That's the pattern for what my ministry is to be. That's the way that I am interacting with God's creation, with his creatures, with his people. It goes to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And what he uses as the illustration is actually, again, that family meal that we think of. It would not be right to take food off of the children's plate and to chuck it to the animals. Now, this is where one area, it is a little bit different. We have almost limitless resources and we have uh, grocery stores right down the road. Most of us do not live in a world today anymore. Some of us may, but most of us don't live in a world where next meal is always a question. And next meal comes directly off backbreaking labor of multiple other people. For us, it's like, oh crud, we're out of food. Let's you know go go get some eggs from the store, and then you're fine. Um, this much harder, food much more precious, and pets not as prized as much. Now, if you've ever been to the developing world, now you interact with animals very differently. Um, dogs are treated very differently. And it's why in still many parts of the world they are delicious uh, as well as <laughs> omnipresent um, because they viewed pets differently. We, you can see very much how much our wealth has influenced us, that our pets have increasingly taken such a, a high value in our homes. So to feed an animal back then would have been kind of a bit of a surprise. You, you fed your work animals, You took care of them because they were tools, but you did not waste resources on pets. Resources were far too scarce and far too valuable, and pets not that special. So he's saying, look, nobody in their right mind would ever consider it okay to take food off the plate of the child in the family who's longing for that food because they're hungry, because everybody's hungry, and then to chuck it to the dogs on the floor. That's what we get with the clear illustration. There are a couple of bits here that we might have missed, though, on our first reading. One of which is he's highlighting there's actually a chronology here. This is a really clever part. We're going to see part of why I I really enjoy her answer so much. Let the children be fed first. He's implying in the background that the dogs will be fed They're just not fed first. There's a a chronology to the interchange. Children and people, then pets and dogs. First one, then the other. He's saying, look, you will get your chance to be blessed by God, but it's not yet. The timing is off. The second thing is he is absolutely calling her a dog to her face. That's something you can't get around, and that was a term that was very common for Jews to refer to Gentiles as. And again, today we, have our, we value our pets so highly that that's not really that offensive of a term anymore. To call somebody a dog is still not good, but you're like, eh, there are worse things, I guess. I mean, you could be called a cat, I don't know, um, depending on your preference, depending on your preference, depending on your preference. That's two groans today, one in the morning, one in the evening. I'm on a roll, pineapple pizza and cats. We got them both. (laughs) There is actually something hidden here that's really sweet, though, is that the term that he uses for dog is not the standard term for dog. He does not call her just a female dog off the street. He calls her specifically a little dog. He adds the the, the ending to it specifically to note that this isn't just the wild dog that runs around out on the street, the ones that fight with other dogs and uh, smell and are nasty and are gross and everything. This is the little Maltese, the teacup poodle. This is actually the term he uses is the term that would have been applied to the one rare category of prized pets the tiny little dog that's kept in the house. The term he uses is not the offensive term that you would often have heard thrown out to specifically address the Gentiles, but instead uses much more of a term of endearment. It's why when we read it in English, it's really harsh. But when you read it in the original, it's nowhere near as harsh as what it reads to us. We read and we're like... Jesus called a woman a dog. What, what, yeah, but that's not, that's not what he said. What he refers to her as is as a pet, as part of the household, the one that lives on the inside, not the one that lives on the outside. I remember one of... The first times I was out of the country in a developing country doing missions work with MTW. And I will always remember the church service, one of the first church services that we were in. Because while one of the gentlemen was preaching, it was a trilingual service. It was English, Spanish, and Quechua. And Quechua is the longest language ever made. So one minute in one, one minute in the next, and then translated to four minutes into Quechua. It was wild. But while the sermon is happening and being translated, a dog fight starts in the street just outside Comes in through the back of the doors, down the center aisle, out that way, and then out the side door, and just continued out into the street. And none of the folks there that remembers the church even blinked an eye. And all of our mission team is just like, What is happening? You know, because none of us had ever seen any of that. Street dogs, man, they were a mess. That's not what he was referring to. He's referring to someone who belongs in the home. Part of the household that actually is entitled to some of the privileges of the home, just not right now. You see, what he's actually given her is a cause for hope, not just a rejection. He's in essence saying, woman, you will be cared for, just not yet. And part of why I enjoy her so much and I rejoice in her is her response is so unbelievably quick-witted i mean i think about how many times i've had to read the same passage of the scriptures and they're like oh i start to and she is on it man this lady is sharp in verse 28 she says yes lord like yeah i'm fine with that i'm comfortable being called that You put me in the lowest pecking order in the home. I'm fine with that. I don't need to be called child. I don't need to be called like I belong. You want to call me the the family pet animal. I am fine with that. Amen. Glory. Hallelujah. I don't need to defend myself. I don't care how low I am in the household of God. It does not matter. Amazing humility. But then the cleverness. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She takes his promise, his illustration, and claims it back to him. Jesus, you used an illustration where to say it would be inappropriate to take food off the plate to feed the dogs. And you're absolutely right. But the dogs eat the same time as the kids. And anybody who has young kids knows that to be true. If you sit down with a table full of young kids and you let the dogs loose... Where are they going to be? Under the kids, sitting there, happy as clams waiting, because they know that when the kids sit at the table, it's time for them to eat. That's where you have that moment where your favorite roll bounces off the plate, hits the floor, and it's gone. Dog is happy. I love the woman. She listens to Christ's kind of rebuke and just cleverly, beautifully, winsomely claims his promise right back at him. You're right, Jesus. We don't get all of the fullnesses of the blessings right now. We will be fed, and I know that. I know that's not right now. But you know what? Even when the kids eat, the dogs eat too. And I should too. I love that. I mean, it's so amazingly quick witted, it's so unbelievably humble and so obedient. I just love thinking about it. Had I been in this situation thinking back on it, first off, I mean, most of us, our ego would have already been having a hissy fit. Who is this poor teacher to call me a dog? Can you believe the man? If you're in the South, he said, bless his heart. How dare he? <laughs> our egos would have gotten hung up on that, much less to just embrace the low calling. You know, I'm fine with that. But then to have listened to God's promises so clearly as to understand the ramifications of them on the fly. This woman's a lot smarter than I am. To listen to God's promise, to listen to Christ's illustration, and then to claim it for her own. As you see, the pattern is so abundantly set. Does it go to the Jew first and then the Gentile? Absolutely, it does. In fact, that's going to be one of the main points there when we get to Romans, where Paul's going to say, look, the Jews had their shot. And they rejected. And now if you want to find God, you don't go to the Jews anymore because they don't have him. You go to the Gentiles because they do. The Jew first and then the Gentile. Jesus' pattern is kept, the pattern of his ministry is kept, yet the woman fully understands and comprehends and applies that promise to get it to be applied to her. Yeah, I understand that the fullness of of the blessings aren't going to go to the Gentiles until later. But Jesus, it doesn't mean that you don't help me now. It doesn't mean that you don't display your glory, that you don't showcase your mercy. Oh Lord, if you would be so kind as to help Mark doesn't highlight it. I assume that verse 29 is probably delivered with a massive smile. I have a tough time thinking it's not. For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. I mean, what a, what a profoundly tender response for one sentence for this statement, this capturing, understanding God's promises and the humility and the faith that are all wrapped up into one. The Lord uses her faith. He honors her faith, the faith that he gave her and heals her daughter. She goes home and finds the child lying in bed. The demon's gone. The poor girl's probably exhausted and sleeping it off recovering I love passages like this because again they are in many ways so ordinary Jesus is using an illustration of a family meal with a dog and at the same time so amazingly extraordinary to heal a young girl from being possessed by a demon which I don't know if I've ever seen I might have quite possibly I love it too, though, because it brings to kind of challenge what faith and genuine faith really and truly looks like for me. You know, as we contemplate, like I said, this one's my hero. How she is comfortable embracing a low status so that she can wrestle with the Lord through his promises. And to think about how many of us we would have missed the opportunity to even deal with God and his promises because we would have been so hung up on who we are. How dare you place me in such a low place? And to think through as well how good of attention she's paying. I mean, it's fair to say that any hope that Jesus gives her is implied at best it's not like he's inviting her to ask again i mean it's not like he's saying oh hey you know what maybe not right now and giving her the green light to come back i love how attentive her ears are to the words of christ Then when he drops this little nugget about the little family toy dog and uses this illustration, she's so engaged with the words of Christ. And she's able to put them into practice to apply them immediately. And again, I wonder, one, how much our ego would have gotten in the way. I do wonder, again, how much we would have missed simply because we wouldn't have been listening. Uh, we, this year, at GA went to... Uh, number of things, Tom and I went to one where it was a presentation by one of the seminary presidents and talking about the status of of theological uh, education, sorry, I can't speak, Um, the state of theological education today. And the um, gentleman was saying how he travels through all the major seminaries, talks to all the presidents, talks to all the chancellors or emperors or whatever their titles are, and uh, asks them what their students are like. And he gets the same response constantly everywhere he goes. Our our students are humble, they're pious, they're righteous, oh, they're smart, they're brilliant, they're wonderful, they're hardworking, they're lovely. The only problem is they don't know how to read, write, speak, or think. That's the only problem. They don't know how to read, write, speak, or think. And that's certainly not their fault. That's an educational system that they've grown up in a cultural moment in America. And I do wonder, again, how many of us, because we just don't pay attention to the word, we don't listen carefully, we don't listen with attentive ears, we would have just missed God's promise here. Okay, and turned around and left. He said no. like No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He said not right now. Those are two totally different things. I do wonder, again, how much we do the same thing with us today where we just don't listen that well. Our ears are not attuned to the scriptures. And this gentleman was talking about uh, at GA how one of the struggles of not being able to read, write, speak, and think, it's hard to deal with texts. There was a book written a number of years ago by a gentleman who, uh, Why Johnny Can't Preach. And again, it's this idea of interacting with uh, what are our weaknesses for who we are and how we are today. He thought he was dying of cancer and it was his kind of parting shot to the church before he died. Uh, And he said, in essence, Preachers struggle because they don't know how to read anymore. We don't listen to the word because we don't know how to pay attention to the promises, how to pay attention to the text, to look at even the little details, the details this woman catches on the fly that we miss. How many times have we read this? We didn't catch it. It showcases God's mercy and his tenderness, his kindness. And how he promises and keeps his promises. I I love how the contrast is then immediately held forward. You could maybe walk away from this and be discouraged and say, well, man, this woman is marvelous, a hero in the faith, and I'm nothing like that. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. The next story doesn't fit that at all, though. He returns to the region from the region of Tyre, uh, went through Sidon down the Sea of Galilee, comes back to basically Jewish land. And uh, have some folks bring him a a fellow who is deaf and had a speech impediment. This is a guy who at one point in his life was uh, likely able to speak in some way. He's figured out uh, through what he was able to hear at one point, likely. He's figured out how to speak in some way, but his head and stuff has problems now. Uh, He's gone deaf. He's not able to hear what he is able to say. Uh, The English goes, it's a speech impediment. It's maybe more than that. Probably not just a stammer or a stutter. Um, It's probably something maybe a bit more violent. Something's not working correctly. His head does not like to produce speech. It's a, a challenge for him. And so they begged the Lord Jesus to lay his hands on him. And I love what we see in the Lord Christ here. How tender this is. How the first thing he does is he takes the man and pulls him aside from the crowd privately. I love that. If you have all of your senses, you can engage in a crowd because you can hear, you can think, you can pay attention to all the noise. You, so this guy can't. He can't hear everything he can't survey all the land around him the same way i remember playing a disc golf tournament a number of years ago and playing on a card actually with ryan with a number of uh, other uh, deaf gentlemen and they said you can talk all you want we won't ever care but when we go to throw you better hold stock still because our attention to movement is so clear that it'll mess us up forever and we'll have to actually start enforcing the rules on you because their eyes had compensated for their lack of ears. Well, how Jesus takes them away so that that's no longer a problem. Well, we're going to take you away from all the moving, uh, flashing hands and all the bodies and all the people and everything, pull you aside and have this wonderful, beautiful interchange. He puts his fingers into his ears after spitting, touches his tongue, looks up to heaven, size, says, be opened, and the guy's healed. And again, we read that and we go, man, that is bizarre. I mean, Jesus, I know you never make mistakes, but this might be the section I'm confused about. Are you putting your fingers in your own ears? Are you putting your fingers in his ears as a wet willy? What's going on here? I don't understand. And again, of course we don't understand because most of us in here just hear just fine. It's not an issue for us to try to communicate with somebody who doesn't have all of their senses. For a fellow who's deaf, how do you communicate to them that you're about to heal their ears? Would you not point to them? How do you communicate to them that you're about to heal their mouth? Would you not point to it? How would you communicate where the power for that healing is coming from? Would you not look to heaven? To communicate, it's, what he's doing here is a physical sermon for a guy who can't hear his words. Fella, I'm about to heal your ears. I'm about to heal your mouth. It's going to happen by the power of God, and I'm going to accomplish it. Be opened. And there were. I love how you get to see it's such a, a tender kind of moving portrait in the, to the ministry of the Lord Jesus as to why he's doing this. And part of it is because he's not just interested in healing the gentleman. He's interested in teaching the gentleman. It's not just a matter of giving him his senses back. It's about teaching him who Jesus is. He's about instructing him how this is even going to happen. It's not just he went to a doctor and a doctor had some sort of miracle pill and he took this miracle pill and suddenly his ears work and everything's great. He's instructing the guy. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this by the power of God, and I'm going to command it to happen. Be opened. And they were. And you get to see the consequence of everybody kind of marveling at who God is. I love that it showcases the Lord's compassion, the tenderness of the Lord Jesus, both of these. And I would maybe just suggest that we contemplate this. The tenderness of the Lord Christ has never changed. It's easy for us to understand that when he's here with them face to face and he has a mother weeping for her daughter and for him to say, look, I'm going to heal your child. And it's easy for us to see it when he's miming to a guy that he's about to restore his body to him, restore his senses to him. Sometimes, though, it might be a little bit harder for us to understand that when we cannot see it directly. And I would suggest maybe sometimes, particularly when we are suffering or the ones that are in the midst of the difficult circumstances it might be, might be just a little that we forget just a touch of how tender he is and how kind and how compassionate to think of how he interacts with us we have described in the scripture a bruised reed he will not break a smoldering wick he will not snuff out Oh, amazing! I love that illustration, largely because if I have a plant, I can kill it with the look of my eye. <laughs> and here it's saying, here's a, a plant that's been damaged. It's been bruised. It's not healthy. It's not right. And yet... He doesn't break it. He's not going to destroy. He actually can nourish it back to life. A smoldering wick, that wick that's been blown out and has just a little glowing, he doesn't just snuff it out and put it out. He's able to actually bring it back to flame. I would encourage you, particularly when you are sad or discouraged or weak or weary, to be reminded King Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his compassion is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you are a child of God, he is no less tender and no less in the business of healing and helping than he was right here. Let us marvel at him and praise him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the Lord Christ. Thank you for his great ministry and thank you for passages like this that force us to slow down and think. And thank you that we can marvel at the faith of our brothers and sisters that have gone before. We praise you, praise Jesus, praise the Spirit. Amen.